will the prophesied utopia come about? Do we have a realistic picture of what it takes to bring about the utopia that the Bible speaks about? Now, in his book, The Wonderful World, Tomorrow, What It Will Be Like, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, he paints a glowing, attractive picture of the millennium. Now, the millennium, of course, is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ, and it begins when he returns here in power as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But over the years, many have found Mr. Armstrong's vision of the millennium very inspiring, very hopeful, and indeed it is. We remember the wonderful things that he told us, the prophecies that are going to occur through that period of time. The millennium's peace, its health, its prosperity, its unity, they're just wonderful things to look forward to. But, what is it going to take to get us from here to there? It is going to take time, it is going to take lots of work before utopia springs from the ashes of the de demolished planet Earth because that too is prophesied in the book of Revelation. Now how we ever counted, if we have ever counted how many plagues there are in the book of Revelation, we have an idea of the devastation that will take place on this earth. When the beast and his armies are coming up, against the armies, the other armies of this world, there will be massive destruction. God may actually allow that so that there's lots of work for those who will be living through that time. How is it that we actually grow in character? By years of experience, by going through pain, by going through suffering, by going through spiritual projects that will bring us finally to that point of maturity. So this is how God will help to bring those persons who go through that difficult period of the great tribulation to a point of maturity. Now do you think that God will actually change his modus operandi during that time as opposed to how he did it? For us, now we may think so, but the Bible says quite clearly that God says, I change not. What we need to do is to look at the transition period between Christ's return and the utopia, and we have an idea of what massive scale destruction there will be and what volume of work will need to be done. Between there, here and there, a lot has to happen. A lot which has to happen involves a lot of hard work. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, God will not come bring this about by fiat. It is going to come about by experience, by work in cooperation with God. And that is what the millennium will be all about. God being here and mankind finally cooperating with him. If we go to the book of Joel, chapter 3, I'd like to read this from the New Living Translation. This gives it in more modern English. Beginning in verse 14, it says, Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. It is there that the day of the Lord will soon arrive. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will no longer shine. 
The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, and the earth and the heavens will begin to shake. But to his people Israel, the Lord will be a welcoming refuge and a strong fortress. Then you will know that I, the eternal your God, live in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem will be holy forever, and foreign armies will never conquer her again. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. Water will fill the dry stream beds, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple, watering the arid valley of Acacia. Now this sounds as if we take one step and wow, there we are. But have we ever thought what it takes to grow new wine or to produce wine? Do we know how long it takes to plant, let's say, the grape seed? Or if you take a cutting from a grape plant to do so, do we know how long we have to allow it to grow? How long we have to allow it to mature so that it finally gets to the place where it is able to produce enough good fruit so that we can get a good squeeze and have some new wine. It takes several years. We have to remember how the land will be at that, that point. There will be total devastation everywhere. How long is it going to take to make plowshares from all those weapons of war? All these things take time. They don't just happen overnight. What Joel did here was simply show the result of Christ's return of making Jerusalem his holy mountain. The results are shown immediately without showing the intervening work and the effort that is going, is going to take and the time element that's involved. Now, if we go to Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Again, the New Living Translation, it says, Then I saw a vision of the Lord standing beside the altar. He said, Strike the tops of the temple's columns so hard that the foundation will shake. Smash the columns so the roof will crash down on the people below. Then those who survive will be slaughtered in battle. No one will escape. Now he's talking here about the destruction of Israel coming from God. But we can say that this is just the beginning of the things that will happen at that time. And if we drop down to verse 11, it says, In that day, I will restore the fallen kingdom of David. It is now like a house of ruins, but I will rebuild its walls and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations. I, the Eternal, have spoken and I will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. 
Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Then they will never be uprooted again. Now this is a far more realistic scenario than what we read in Joel a little earlier. Verse 13 gives the impression of some time passing before the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. It takes time, however. This is an entire harvest cycle that is taking place. And it doesn't show them miraculously planting, growing, and reaping crops. We see people out in the fields in in these verses doing these things. There are people who are working. Verse 14 speaks of building, planting vineyards, and making gardens. These are all long-term projects that God is talking about here. They are not instantaneous miracles. Now let us think about this for a moment. God tells us emphatically in several places. You can see Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6 and Hebrews 13, 8. That he does not change. There is no variation in turning in him. His approach to things does not vary very much. Now knowing that, do we think that he will work with these people during the millennium in a different way than he's working with you and me right now? I don't. If you change the approach, don't you change the outcome? Oftentimes that is the case. So the goal for us and the goal for them will be the same. To become sons and daughters of God in his image. And so he's going to use the exact same process to make that happen with them as he is doing with us right now. The same goal requires the same approach. But they will have advantages that we do not have which I hope will speed the process for them. For one thing, they are going to have the very God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords right there with them. And that's a tremendous advantage. Now remember, in one place it says that they will have people behind them saying, this is the way, walk you in it. But they are still going to have to do the walking. We are not going to be doing it for them. And even though they will have freedom of choice. At least they will have persons there to guide them. And beings there to guide them. And Jesus Christ is not going to be doing it for them. He would not produce the sons and daughters for his father that his father requires if he does everything for them. They will also have another advantage that we do not have. And that will be they will not have the influence of Satan, the devil, to trip them up. 
Of course, they will still have their own human nature, the pulse of the flesh. And even without Satan around to pull our strings and push our buttons, it is a challenge for us to deal with our own desires. It will be difficult at a certain level. We, however, are protected in a great measure from Satan by God and we still have problems overcoming our flesh. So they are going to have to work on that. And we know that that process is going to take time. So what method has God used to build godly character in his children? He uses instruction. He uses experience over a lifetime. Now it's been most of my life personally and I'm sure for many others it's the same. But he will allow us to live until he feels that we have done what we need to do. And finally at one point in our life he will consider to have he would consider us to have developed the character sufficiently to be in his kingdom and to be his sons and daughters. And that's the way it's going to work out throughout the millennium. They're going to go through the same type of process we are now going through, except for those few advantages. And that is why, because they have those advantages, that you and I will have a better resurrection. That we are first, and we face these trials of life, we face our flesh, we face Satan the devil, without the direct participation of God here on earth as they have him face to face with them. We had to act in faith, knowing that he was in heaven, he was invisible, but he was with us. And then we will be in the first resurrection and reigning with him on his throne forever. But God's way, God's method, is going to continue the same at that time in the millennium as it is now. His people will learn and grow in godly character. But how you may ask, what will their projects be? What will the work be for them? Now we've read twice, rebuilding the earth, rebuilding the cities, pulling the societies out of the ashes and refashioning it. In God's image. Not in the image of Satan as it was. These people. Who will be alive in the millennium. Will have to learn to work together. Because in the past. Everything was competition. In the millennium. All will be cooperation. They will have to learn to prioritize properly. In their work. They will have to learn that God comes first, not work. And that will be helpful because in our work, we have to sometimes take a lot of risk to put God first. But they will have to learn that they have certain advantages and they will have to learn to share, to live in harmony, just as we do. But all of this will be done in a massive planet-wide renewal project that God has in store during the millennium. This planet-wide renewal may occupy most of the thousand years. Now think about it. 
How much will have to be done to get this earth back into condition where it is fit for God? We will have God living on this planet during the millennium and it will be the responsibility of the people in cooperation with God and all the other members of the God family to make it a fit place for him. He is coming as king of kings and lord of lords. Now let's take one step further. Don't we know that the millennium is not the end of civilization? I'm sure we do. The millennium is not the goal. It is actually a transition period in itself to another time. The time we know as the great white throne judgment period. This hundred year period we believe is tacked on to the end of the millennium. And what is going to happen then? Oh, there will just be about 50 billion or so people who will suddenly appear. They will appear, appear on this planet and they need to be sustained. 50 billion people suddenly coming up. As a matter of fact, God himself is going to have to open up areas for them to live that are currently uninhabitable. And I believe that a great deal of the millennium period is going to be spent preparing for this time. These people in the millennium, they're going to have to learn to put their own needs second in preparation for the great onslaught of humanity that will come out of that great white throne judgment. They will be preparing them housing, opening up lands for agriculture so that there will be food for 50 billion or so people in a, on a day-in, day day-out basis. They will have to have enough clothes set by for 50 billion all at once. And I don't believe that they are going to be dressed in prison uniforms. There are things that have to be done to prepare for that time, brethren. And in that preparation, they will be doing the work. Everyone will be doing the work of God. And I believe that in doing that work of God, the people themselves will be prepared for this place in God's kingdom. So there are dual, dual physical projects, rebuilding civilization from the ashes and preparing for the great white throne judgment will fill up that thousand years, that millennium. The state of Israel, as I understand it, is poor right now. What do you think it is going to look like after the armies pass through there? Now, there has been constant fighting there for generations. We know this. Now, it's probably one of, maybe you might think, one of the bloodiest places on the planet. It is the crossroad between East and West. It's the connector between Africa, Europe, and Asia. And armies have gone through there. Migrations have also gone through there. And the place looks as if it has been rotted from all the people who have gone through there and just taken its, their toll on it. Many parts of it are barren, I understand. It is not the land flowing with milk and honey that the scriptures outlines. The Israelis, I understand, have done a wonderful job at, as we, at reclaiming some of the land from the desert 
But even that is not enough. That place in the end will look like the Garden of Eden as the Bible describes it. But all this will take some time. God will help. But people will have to be involved to a great extent as part of that great project. God's work is to put the earth in shape. Now if we go to Isaiah chapter 40. And I'd like to read this from the New King James Version. Isaiah chapter 40. Beginning in verse 1. Here it says. Comfort. Yes, comfort my people says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. That her her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the eternal has spoken. Now God himself will take on this transformation project. He will lower some of the mountains. He will raise some of the valleys. Now what about places like the Gobi Desert, Sahara Desert? What about some of these other places like the Ice Caps? Now there is a huge continent called Antarctica. I understand it's uninhabitable because it's so cold. What if that was made fit for human life somehow? You would say it couldn't happen? It will. I don't think there is a person or that could even model how it will be done, but God knows. He has to make this planet able to support 50 billion people over time, and he has a great project ahead for himself to make this planet fit for that many people. If we see what it says in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 10. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 10 says all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. This is talking about a project that God has in store for the land of Israel. I understand that Geba is about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is going to be visible for miles around as the tallest thing that one can see. 
God will do some transforming of Jerusalem itself. It says here, he will basically rebuild the city. The implication here is that most of the Holy Land, as we see it now, will no longer be there. It will be changed somehow to be the fit abode for Jesus Christ and those who sit with him on his throne and those who will be ruling for a thousand years as kings and priests with him. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah chapter 35, Verse 1 says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the eternal, the excellence of our God. Dropping down to verse 6, it says, Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Now, there are some, these are just some of the effects of God's transforming project. Now, a lot of this is really reversing the effect of man's sins and the way that man has reaped this earth. Now, does this say in Revelation that when Christ is back, he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth? He's concerned about the creation and about the way man has treated the environment. Sure, God made man, gave mankind dominion over this earth. He told them to tend and keep, but when has man ever done anything that God told him to do? Instead, he has used, he has abused, he has stoned down. Rather than build, he has broken down. Now, it doesn't say here anywhere in the Bible how God will do these things. Just that he will. But we know that mankind will be used to help do these things under God's supervision. But just think about how much land could be reclaimed if there was rainfall over the Sahara Desert. Now in Isaiah chapter 13 verse 23, reading from the New Living Translation, it says, then the eternal will bless you with rain at planting time. There will be wonderful harvest and plenty of pasture land for your cattle. Now we can just imagine North Africa being quite a land, a large pasture land. Where it is the higher desert is now. Could we envision this? Now there, there is not a whole lot of high ground there right now as I understand it. But if you turn all the dunes and the pasture lands, how many cattle could roam on that, in that area? It's interesting to just think about it. 
in verse 24 it says, The oxen and donkeys that till the ground will eat good grain. It's sharp having been blown away by the wind. The implication here is that they are going to eat grass that we consider, things that we consider fit for human consumption, not what we throw away. They will not be given refuse. They will have the best grain to eat. Verse 25 says, In that day, when your enemies are slaughtered, there will be streams of water flowing down every mountain and hill. The moon will be as bright as the sun, and the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. So it will be when the Lord begins to heal his people and cure the wounds he gave them. Now maybe this is the answer to why the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Maybe that is how God is going to make it so that the earth will be able to produce sevenfold. The implication seems to be that even the light of the moon will act like the light of the sun in producing crops. Now isn't that how things grow? Give them water, give them light, give them the right cultivation, the right soil, and they will produce maybe sevenfold. Now we don't know, but it seems to be a possibility, doesn't it? Now let us turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And we'll read verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 61. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, And this is where Christ stopped. He didn't go on because that is what he's going to do when he comes the second time. Verses 3 to 4 says, To console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now this physical project will be the work of God that people will do and who knows how long that work will take I don't we have a different work for them you notice God always has a slightly different work for each period of time Noah's work was different from Moses work Moses work was different from Joshua's work Joshua had a different work from someone like Ezra or Jephthah or David. 
they will have areas of similarity, but it is going to be that different that while they are doing that work of God, that they too will be growing. And that is how it works with us too. Going back to Isaiah 61, reading verses 5 to 7, it says, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord, they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in the glory you shall boast. This really gives a very good indication of the work of Israel. Remember, this is primarily spoken, speak, speaking of Israel. There's, that is the way that God writes things to have several levels of meaning. But this is one specifically, specifically written for Israel during the millennium. Because it is taking about, talking about Christ coming back, bringing Israel back into our former habitation. And putting them to work. What do they do? They are rebuilding the old waste places. And how long that takes? We don't know. But it appears that the rebuilding will be first. They have to have a place to live. They have to make conditions just right. Then it says that strangers and Gentiles will become their workforce. Now what is Israel going to do while all the work is being done for them by the Gentiles? It tells us very clearly what they will be doing. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. This tells us that after they finish rebuilding, the Israelites are going to do their original job. What did God call Israel to be for him? A nation of priests. They're going to be the servants, the ministers that God will be using during the millennium. Now remember, it says in 1 Timothy 5.17 that an elder is to receive double honor if he does his work well. Well, it says in verse 7, instead of shame and dishonor, you will inherit a double portion of prosperity and everlasting joy. This was also the inheritance of the firstborn which was double so the impression here is that they are going to be the elders the ministers the preachers the teachers during the millennium teaching their fellow human beings now those who will be in the first resurrection will be working with them and behind the scenes directing these efforts ruling and teaching them but they're the ones who are going to be going out doing the evangelizing it would be great to have God speak to us all at that time and tell us what to do. But for human beings, we would have a tendency to feel like this is impossible. But that is God. He's telling us what to do. We're just normal human beings. It might be easy for him to do, but for us it might seem impossible. And so God uses former human beings to speak with humans, to teach them, so that they have a kind of a brotherhood 
that they understand that their teachers understand what they're going through and can help with their problems because they were once humans like them. It is a little easier coming from a former man than from an all-powerful God. It's a kind of a psychological thing, but it also means that the preachers are going through the same thing and the same growth as those who are listening to them. So it would be a little easier for them. In verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 61, the New Living Translation says, For I, the eternal, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are people the Lord has blessed. Now this section primarily covers the Israelites' reward once they repent. But there's an underlying idea here. That idea is in the phrase, their descendants will be known and honored among the nations. Now how do they know them? It is what they do. The relationship they have with God and the reward that they receive for having that relationship and doing that work. Now the Gentiles... In seeing this, they will appreciate it. They will get the right example from it. It will draw them. They will want to emulate it. And they will be blessed. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how... I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the eternal has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the eternal. Now it is very interesting that God is going to hold them to their oath. It had been delayed for a long time. But God is going to make them do that work that he promised to be a kingdom of priests to him and to be a light to the Gentiles, to evangelize them and to show them the way of God. All the indications from the Bible is that the Gentiles are going to just soak it up faster than the Israelites ever did. It says that the Gentile kings will bring the Israelite sons and daughters from afar. They will bring all their wealth. They will be the nurses, 
and the nannies of the Israelites' children. That may be figurative, but the idea is that the Gentile nations will be willing to serve the Israelites because they will have the right attitude. They will be taught the right way. They can imagine themselves doing it because God seemed to pick the most stubborn people to be his. And the other peoples of the world, when they hear the truth that God opens up to them, their eyes will be open and they will jump into the fray with both feet. So during the millennium, the Israelites are going to do the work that they failed to do when God gave it to them initially. They will be the priests, the ministers, the teachers, and the evangelists. They will be the ones who will spread the gospel. They will be the ones who will feed the flock. And this time, they are going to do it properly as they should have done it in the first place. In Ezekiel chapter 44, beginning in verse 10, it says, And the men of the tribe of Levi who abandoned me when Israel strayed away from me to worship idols must bear the consequences of their unfaithfulness. Meaning, God hasn't cleared them of this just yet. Verse 11, this is how they are going to clear their name before God. It says, they may still be temple guards and gate men, and they may still slaughter the animals brought for burnt offerings and be present to help the people. But they encourage my people to worship other gods, causing Israel to fall into deep sin. So I have raised my hand and taken an oath that they must bear the consequences for their sins, says the sovereign Lord. They may not approach me to minister as priests, they may not touch any of my holy things or the holy offerings, for they must bear the shame of all the sins they have committed. They are to serve as the temple caretakers and as are relegated to doing maintenance work and helping the people in a general way. However, the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok continued to minister faithfully in the temple when Israel abandoned me for idols. These men will serve as my ministers they will stand in my presence and offer the fat and blood of the sacrifices, says the Sovereign Lord. Those who fail to do what God told them to do in the first place, he's going to give them a second opportunity. They will be the caretakers. They will do things that they failed to do before. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who had done it right the first time, they will get the priestly jobs. They'll get the better jobs. But they're still doing the work that Israel was supposed to do, specifically the Levites who were put in charge of the temple, the tabernacle, and all the holy things. So this specific tribe is going to be doing what it was given to do in the wilderness. Israel's righteousness, when it, is, when it finally does spring forth, will cause the Gentiles to come in droves. They have always seemed better, to be a bit better at reacting to what God does than the Israelites. Oftentimes, people come into the church because of righteousness and things that they see. They always say that the word of mouth is the best advertising, but that is not necessarily so. 
It is the shining example of God's people that happens to be the best advertisement. It is really something that we probably don't see very often. We don't mark the distinction so much. But somebody who does not know God's way and sees it for the first time can be very much impressed. And if they watch for any reasonable amount of time, they can see that the reason why the people act as they do is because of those things about Israel's work, the covenant and the blessings that God gives. They all go together. The work is what they notice, what they do, how they act and what they offer. The covenant is their relationship with God. If people notice the work and if they try to link things together, it's not very long before they see that the reason why we do what we do is because of the relationship we have with God. Because that is the center point of our activities. And then it won't be very long before they see that the reason why the blessings come is because we obey God and keep his laws, statutes, and precepts. And we see them working with us. And this is how it is going to work during the millennium also. Israel's example is going to be a shining beacon that attracts the Gentiles. And I'm sure it is not going to take very long once Israel begins showing the good example that the Gentiles will come in multiple droves. Now eventually, the area of influence of God's way is going to spread from Jerusalem. It's going to spread from the land of Israel. As their example keeps going into the further reaches of the earth, it will keep spreading. And we have to admit, there is going to be human nature still. Even though Christ will come back with all the power, there's still going to be there's still going to be people who will resist, and it's going to take a while for those nations to give up their individual sovereignty to Jesus Christ. Just look how difficult it is for nations to give up their sovereignty to human organization like United Nations. Nations do not want to give up their independence. It is going to take a while before they learn of Christ's mercy, of his goodness, of his wisdom, and his rulership. So it may take a while before Israel's example will actually be heeded. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, reading from the New Living Translation, it says, In the last days, the temple of the eternal in Jerusalem will become the most important place on earth. People from all over the world will go there to worship. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the eternal, to the temple of the God of Israel. There, will, there he will teach us his ways so that we may obey him. For in those days, the eternal's teachings and his words will go out from Jerusalem. The eternal will settle international disputes. All the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. All wars will stop. 
and military training will come to an end. There will be no need for United Nations. That's the effect of the law going out from Jerusalem. It will bring peace. Now we don't know how long it will take for Christ with the rod of iron to subdue all nations. We do know that it's going to take some time after he comes. But the Bible just isn't quite clear on this. He will come, he will establish his throne in Jerusalem. Maybe he may have to put out a few fires. Man is rebellious, we know this. And we need to remember that it does say that if Egypt does not come up to the feast, he will plague them with no rain. But this wouldn't take long. Once Israel is doing its work, it won't take long once the nations begin to see Israel's work and the blessings that Israel receives for doing God's work. Isaiah 66, 19 says, I will perform a sign among them and I will send them who survive to be messengers to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians who are famous archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to all the lands beyond the sea that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. There they will declare my glory to the nations. These are nations of Asia, basically. They are the people of Japheth, predominantly, and it seems like a great deal of the missionary work of the evangelism during the millennium will be to convert Japheth. At least that is the inclination here. It says those are far off who have not had the influence of even nominal Christianity. And that is what part of the main evangelistic effort will be. Christianity will go out to those nations perhaps for the very first time. Maybe it will occur during the rebuilding process. Or maybe in tandem with it. They evidently do not get quite as involved in the end time problems as say the Caucasians during the time of the beast. All the terrible wars that occurred, they might have escaped some of it. But they will have their own 200 million man army. And there are a lot of people who will be back home. So let's think about the evangelism that can be done by Israel during that time to that vast horde of people. God says he will send them to show his glory to the nations. He does that to have it all fit together. The earth and its people will be in very poor shape. We know this. But though the beast and his armies are destroyed, so is the earth, so are all the cities. Lots of rubble, lots of ash, lots of ruin. Think about the people who will be recovering from plagues, war, famine, earthquakes, and all the other disasters mentioned in the book of Revelation. God wants Christ, once Christ returns, he will begin to make some major changes in the earth's surface. So that more land becomes arable. So that the weather patterns become more amenable to agriculture. 
optimal conditions for producing food. There will still be a great deal of work to do. But when Israel, when Israel repents and is converted, the people will begin to rebuild. And the rebuilding, it could take many years. But Mr. Armstrong always said that it will take a few generations before they begin to start changing their minds and their habits to the way that God wants. And the physical rebuilding will tend to parallel that. It may take many generations before the Israelites are fully converted. Israelites, we know, are stubborn people. But all the earth's population grows, so more rebuilding will take place as they get help. And eventually, God will begin preparing for the vast multitudes that will come up in the great white throne judgment in the second resurrection. It will take a while before the other nations begin to realize and really notice how much better Israel is because of what is happening. Now we have a thousand years to finish this process. But eventually most of this world's peoples will come to the knowledge of God and it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As it says in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, In that day you will sing, praise the eternal. He, will, he was angry with me, but now he comforts me. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. In that wonderful day you will sing, thank the Lord, praise his name. Tell the world what he has done. Oh, how mighty he is. Sing to the Lord, for he has done wonderful things. Make known his praise around the world. Let all the people of Jerusalem shout his praise with joy. For great is the Holy One of Israel who lives among you. This will be the song of praise that will be sung, honoring God and thanking him for all he has done. But let us remember, utopia will not come overnight. There's lots of work to be done. There's lots of renovation and repair and cleaning up. And God will use those who are alive during that time, the physical human beings, being supervised by his spirit, sons and daughters. That is what God has planned, and that is what we believe.